to once I come out of this, man, I'll be able to give. I, it's like I want to talk to art. So when I see someone, an artist I haven't seen for a while, like, let me talk to you about insurance. I'm, <laughs> it's just like I you used to I, be I, for Corel Painter, and now you're for yeah. Liberty Mutual. I'm shilling for Liberty and State Farm now. No, seriously, it's just like listen. I want to. I'm inspired to create as much benefit for all the people out there from this tragedy as I possibly can. And I've been learning so many things, so many important things, both spiritual and logistical from this that are all things that I wish that I would have known as well. Greetings, future fossils. Android Jones is an amazing artist, but also someone who I consider a friend and an old friend. And this episode is profound conversation that in some ways I think exemplifies future fossils more than possibly any other episode of this show to date. I'm deeply grateful to Andrew and to Lucid News for putting us together. I was already planning to talk to Android again on the show, but life happens and the conversation we ended up having because Faye from Lucid News hit me up and asked if I wanted to report on this turned out to be truly one of the most rich and vulnerable and profound discussions I think we have ever had on this show. I know a lot of people are going through big, big changes right now and I hope that this discussion helps you navigate those changes. But before we get going, I want to thank everyone supporting this show on Patreon or Substack. I can't make up my mind, but I appreciate your following and your remuneration. This is an enormous amount of work for someone with kids and another day job and I love this show and I'm glad that you all are helping me it going. Shout outs to new members, Jake Ruiz, Kate Natale, Matt Melvin Kushki, Henry Andrews, Alan Slacks, Jeffrey Malecki, Myth Self, Carrie Hart. You're awesome. I appreciate you. Everybody who's been reviewing the show, thank you. And if you haven't, please do. I love your feedback. And even if it's critical, I appreciate it. And with that, here you are, Android Jones. So how are you, man? In this moment, yeah, I feel good in this presently. But in general, I'm probably better than average if you average like the last 10 years average. Surpri- surprisingly, considering the all the things that have been happening in like the past few weeks. You're at peace. I don't know, peace, but that's, I think peace is a little lofty. I am as fully engaged in this process as I can be. And that feels, it feels good. That feels meaningful. 
it feels like a lot of the things that have been happening have just in, in the past, it's been like a week, almost like a week and a half. I just feel like there's been so many dramatic, I've undergone so many different dramatic transformations that based off the value of the things that I've learned in the way that it's been changing my perceptions of things, like I'm very, I'm, tur- I'm turning that corner where I'm really grateful for I don't know if I'm totally at acceptance yet, but I'm becoming more grateful for, I'm definitely grateful for all the things that I have incredibly grateful for that. And I'm starting to, I think, just see a bigger, a bigger picture through this insight and the, and all the things that have happened and things that's made me realize that I was pretty much like un, unaware of. So it's always a good thing. All right. So for folks who, Need a narrative. Uh-huh. Like what actually, like what happened to you? Let's start. Like the, just so the, the recent narrative. I don't know how far we want to, we can yeah, go like, back, we can go back farther later on, but as far as yeah. kind of like the present. Your barn uh, burned down. Uh, that's the, the, what is happening. The critical yeah. node. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, we want to get into the story time. So story time. It would have been, gosh, I feel like it's, it was last a week. Before last Wednesday, I believe that would have been like the 18th. I wake up, I live here in Colorado, and I'm an independent artist, so I work from home. And I have this kind of one of my prized material studio, castle, like my castle grayskull fortress of creative solitude is this big barn studio, which I put a lot of energy into. And it's just, it's out of all the, it's my spaceship for it. I navigate as we travel through the universe and I go there every day from like nine to five to make art and work on projects and do all the things. And I wake up Wednesday morning, got three kids. So probably one of the, one of my three children probably woke me up maybe around five, five thirty. Get up, you make coffee, shower, get dressed, go through the whole routine of the care and nurture of three children and a wife, which can, it's never a dull moment. And it had snowed the night before, so I went out to shovel the driveway and had my headphones on. I was totally blasting some Slayer in my headphones, like full volume, shoveling like six inches of snow, as you do. Shoveling the six inches of snow down this long vertical cement driveway. And at the bottom of the driveway, it's about halfway done. And I sense a bit of a disturbance. I look at the top of the driveway and I see my wife and she's got like our... A 14 month year old baby Mocha, like in her arms, and she's yelling and waving to try to get my attention because I'm immersed in, in, in Slayer. And I can see the words come out of her mouth. And then I take my headphones off. And the th- three words that I feel that I don't know how, what kind of words could have instilled that much fear in me, but she's like, Barnes on fire. And in that, and that was like, the moment that my reality started to dramatically shift into a just a whole new simulation. So I get in my truck, I start it, and I drive like a maniac. And I only live an hour and maybe not an hour. I live like a mile and a half away from my studio. And as I race like onto the highway, I get on the main the main road to where the barn is. And as I turn this curve, we live in the foothills here in Lyons. And to my left, like to the north, there's kind of like a large, it's kind of like a mountain. I guess it's the beginning of the foothills. 
and I turn the curve and halfway there, I can see this like black towering pillar of smoke, like violent smoke coming out over the horizon. And that's my heart was already racing, but that was my first indication that this is, it's hard to interpret like the barns on fire, a corner of it could be on fire or there could be part of it. But when I saw the energy of that smoke, I knew that this was, it was new level of seriousness. And so I race down there and I pull up around. I take the back way because I can see there's already a couple first responders. There's even a fire truck behind me. And so I take this two different routes to barn access to the property. So I take the dirt road through the orchard and get up to the barn and it is fully engulfed in flames. And we've got some videos on our Instagram. People want to see some of the disaster porn of it, but it's a 40 by 30 foot square foot footprint with a 20 by 40 secondary level on top. And there is fire being expelled from every door and every window. And I can't even get within 15 feet of it without suffering like serious burning pain. And so it was at that point where there was nothing that I, I've got tons of fire extinguishers. All my firefighting gear was actually inside the barn. I've been, I've had this real fear of wildfires, as I'm sure many people have for the past few years. So I had a lot of preparations. I'd done lots of preparations for that, but I never really prepared for a fire that started from within. And uh, yeah, I think that what sort of struck me, lots of things occurred to me, but definitely was that sort of moment of total helplessness. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can run or grab. And uh, yeah, that was, as I'd say, that was the moment I began to sink into the the season of my own abyss. So before we venture into the abyss. I've heard through the grapevine that it, the cause of the fire was some batteries. You know, or, it's like, totally, it's, I'd say it's totally undetermined right now. The investigators, we met with the investigators last week because we have, they have to do like a full inspection of the site and based off just the amount of debris. So it, I fire the fire people that amazing. We have incredible first responder firefighters within Lions Longmont and Hygiene that arrived on the scene, they focused their efforts on making sure that nothing, that it didn't catch. We have, a, we have an apple orchard. There's my mom's house is on the property. They did a really great job making sure the fire didn't spread anywhere else. And But they let the fire pretty much just, they let the structure burn into its own footprint and continue burning. So it's it's a pretty difficult situation for a for an investigator to figure out what the cause is. He might need a couple weeks and like a cherry picker to go through the debris and figure it out. I've this is a this this barn is a barn my, my father had built years and years ago and I when my father passed away in twenty thirteen I inherited it as a studio and so I've it's been my space and it's just interesting. I've never had a close call. There's never been anything sparking up. I have like extinguishers everywhere and so there's never been it's always been a fear but it's never been an incident. And so I have no idea what caused it and, and nobody does now based off of what the, one of the fire marshals, I believe on the scene had told me, he asked some questions like, Oh, did you have like lots of, I think like the usual things like that you have like a space heater on, did you leave a fire going? Were there candles? I didn't have any of those things. If there was lots of extension cords and I'm, I've been around electricity a lot, I'm pretty good about 
not leaving anything up with a high amperage plugged in. But he did say, he's like, did you have any power tool batteries there? And that just got my attention because I'm a, as some people know me, I'm a, like a, just like a red slut for the Milwaukee brand of tools. And I might have had 12 to 18 different batteries in or around the barn at that time in various stages of charging. And he did mention that he's seen in this last year, like over a hundred fires started in shops because these batteries can discharge and explode or if it's a damaged battery, you leave it on a charger. It was definitely a concern that I was totally unaware of. It's interesting that because of COVID, just the thing, a lot of batteries manufactured in the last year, with COVID and shipping delays and lack of resources that some of the companies have had to cut corners on batteries. But like I said, it's total speculation. It could have been that, but regardless, it is, I'd say, the nuts and bolts of exactly why it started is still totally un- unknown. Yeah, earlier you foreshadowed a prequel to this. that You said you were willing to go deeper. Was there, in the way that you've come to make sense of this, is there more yeah. like behind this event? There is. Yeah, yeah. no, there's, there, there's a lot there, I think. And that's really, I feel that's, when something like this happened, my my initial hit when this happened, it was it's like my brain wasn't even able to calculate the the deep loss of it as an artist. Twenty years of terabytes of the hard drives that I'd I'd been going through all these like I gathered all the hard drives after over twenty years, and I began putting them in like duplicate and triplicate, backing everything up, all the recent work, like all the. I had eight flat files of original artwork, helican cases of sketchbooks that go back maybe like 15 years. And all of this just photos. There's a lot of, there's a lot of tech in there. There's obviously all my machines and computers, drawing instruments, full, like my, my, my library of like art books and just all the treasures and trappings of someone like me who is a bit of a maximal materialist does collect over time to see all of that in this just explode in this orgy of energy. I there's I know you like language. Something that's helped me as far as when I refer to it, when I think about because the language you use is important when you yeah. saying things like the barn is it got destroyed or it burnt or it no longer the what I've come to the way that I refer to it now, and one of the reasons why it was such a devastating loss is that in my mini universe, I feel like the barn itself represented with all of the energy in there. It was the highest concentration of the information of me. And it was on a material level. It was like my greatest, like material and emotional quantum entanglement that I had and I had worked on and developed and was very proud of. And so what I was really going through in that moment was witnessing decoherence of my quantum entanglement. And the decoherence is when when information is released back into the environment. And so it was my, it's my great event would, I I do consider the grand, the the great decoherence of Android Jones Interesting. I yeah. just to add this little piece of it, treating this as if it were a, a normal sort of conversation I would have with anybody. I just last year interviewed this astrobiologist from Columbia University, Caleb Scharf. He wrote a book about the data ohm. The data ohm 
is what you're talking about. It's the material instantiation of everything that humans have outboarded in books, etc. Right. <clears throat> Since the advent of us, like taking a piece of our minds and etching it into something, mm-hmm. the data ohm has grown and grown and it, it's causal pressure on us has grown as well. And now, as Caleb argues, now we're at a point where the predominant human activity is to cultivate and feed the data ohm of humankind. It's, it's this, in a way, like this is related to Richard Dawkins' idea of the extended phenotype, like the idea that the beaver dam is a part of the beaver or the spider web is a part of the spider. But yeah, man, I, it's interesting how most of us think about the, it's weird because we have, I think, conflicting intuitions about this. On the one hand, in the modern world, we think of ourselves as discrete in some kind of way. This is me. I am, I'm over here. In another way, when you rack up the amount of energy required by us to go through a day. Physicist Jeffrey West has made the point that the human body actually extends into all of the servers that we're using remotely and all of the supply chains and everything. And that when you plot the metabolism of mammals from like a mice to elephants, mm-hmm. it was the middle there, but it all falls neatly on a line but the humans, modern humans, are, are the flesh and blood only consumes maybe like 90 watts of energy a day. But the whole human, the whole cyborg is 11,000, which is like a tyrannosaurus or so it's five tyrannosaurs. It's insane. It's, I don't know. It's interesting to, to think about all of this in terms of, cause I think a lot about life and fire and how each of us is uh, each of us is a flame and i don't know i don't know what i'm i don't know what i'm getting at here but just that you are the other version of modernity the other intuition is that we are my phone is a part of me that piece and so i think most people listening to this or reading this can relate to having been locked out of cloud storage or losing a losing a drive or whatever and feeling like they had a stroke or something feeling like a part of them has gone yeah it's, i like the way that you put it i feel like you know, each of us we are our own the expression of our life is the cultivation of our individual data that then interacts collectively with all of the data and as an artist like it was but what i felt in that moment it was it really did it did feel i don't want to over traumatize it because the, the good news is everyone was okay nobody was hurt nobody was injured which is really fortunate but there was a the feel, some of the feelings that arose in that moment there there was a feeling of, of a part of me dying because so much as an artist you i'm the active art like the work that was in all of those originals in all those sketchbooks that's the it's like the focused love and the crystallization of my consciousness and my life force. And so in a way, I, we like to try to think that we can cheat, cheat mortality by 
infusing and burning our spirit like into these things. And it's the hope that not only do they represent, but that it represents thousands, tens of thousands of hours of my life and the best part of my life, having that decohere into nothing. A big part of me felt like I was dead. The first day, I think the first 24 hours there, I'd wake up in the morning and I felt like I was a ghost just haunting my own life. And it almost, it's almost worse than just death. A lot of it, it felt like my life, all the time that I had put into these, all the energy, all of that stored, that, that, that investment into a potential future that I thought would be beneficial. It felt like all of that was erased. And I was, I felt so less than I'd never felt less or more diminished than in that moment. And just with any type of a deep grief, those initial stages, you're dealing with the shock and the denial and the fear and the guilt and the anger. And my, like my, my, my initial hot take was just, was honestly thinking that I was just smited by God. Like which, like what entity had I offended and like, where did I go wrong to deserve this kind of punishment of this magnitude there was a lot of that within the shock there was there were moments of i did some capturing of myself with the phone just taking videos and just because i just wanted whatever was happening i just wanted to record that so i wouldn't i knew this i knew that whatever this was it was something i would never forget and it's always nice to have some evidence of it i do remember thinking that i am an optimist i'm an apocalyptic optimist and i did i did consider looking at the bright side of things that like losing this material thing and this could this kind of loss is it's not even on the level of losing my my, my biggest fears would be losing someone that i cared about or someone that i loved or any suffering happening to like my family or friends but on a material level like this was my one of my greatest fears was i would lose all of this data and this information and i would lose the barn and there was a, a something semi-comforting of i carried this fear for so long and now this was happening, I don't have to be afraid of this happening anymore. Like when the worst thing you thought happens, it's just like the rear Kipling. It's like the success and failure are both like imposters. You can treat the same. But this was, this still was a level of, it's not the worst thing that ever happened. I said like when I found out my father died, like that there was a lot more screaming and gnashing of teeth. But there was something just about the absurdity of how huge this fire was and how I went from just zero to 60 from, like I said, living my best life, shoveling snow, listening to Slayer, to <laughs> watching just like the opening credits of this like real time, total ego death dissolution with in front of us, this live studio audience that was, yeah, there's a certain, it took a while just with the inertia of that to, to kick in. And uh, yeah, I'd say like the first, 24 to 48 hours was obviously like the most, the most dating period. I think like after, after just observing the fire for three hours and running around trying, there's maybe like 20 different firefighters there. I think I was driving all of them crazy because I just tried to direct them or there's still, because it, it caught fire to everything around the barn. I had a big outside workshop and compost toilet and some outbuildings that were all are all totally charcoal now. And once I had this, at least surrendered to the fact that there's nothing I can do to make this better, I was really lucky. I, I just recently started doing kickbox, taking kickboxing lessons. And so I had a kickboxing class at noon. So I arrive at the fire at 8.30 at noon. <laughs> I'm, I'm punching a heavy bag. 
as hard as I possibly can. And it, I got to say the kickboxing, there's no silver bullet to healing and processing, processing grief. But as far as like the anger stage, man, I'm so grateful for kickboxing and being able to just hit a heavy bag with, with left and right hooks for an hour. So I feel like that's been a, it's really helped process a lot of, at least that element of the nonlinear grief has an outlet to it, which is awesome. There's a piece of this that's evident in the way that you talk about this, but I want to unpack it a little bit more with you, which is you are a, I don't know what the right word is, recognized, I guess. I was a sort of notorious that I, this isn't, that's not maybe as pleasant as I'm hoping, but you're an acknowledged psychonaut. Yes. And so when you talk about ego death, when you talk about this stuff, it's interesting because when people talk about there are, they say you die twice. You die when you die and then you die when people forget you. This barn is the, I don't know, the data colony of your <laughs> ego empire. <laughs> called them somewhat, uh, one of the comments they called it the, the library of Android Xandria. <laughs> <laughs> or like yeah. Alex Android, Alex Android, something like uh, that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is my digital Akashic record of me for sure. But yeah, but that's just the thing, right? Is that like anyone who takes that stuff seriously knows that what we're trying to create with the machine is an involution or an emanation or a projection of what's actually going on. The Akash didn't go up in flames. All mm -hmm. of that stuff is still there in that sense. And even me mechanically and materially speaking, like the, I know that Sketchbooks are irreplaceable. I heard you lost some like hardware crypto wallets, which sucks. That's but, actually, we can get into that. There's a silver lining on, on, on that one and, and some good, just some solid advice for any of the crypto bros out there. Yeah. Let's get to that in a second. But first I want to, I want to just at the same time, this came, I don't know if this should go in the final cut, but like Lee, I looked up online and I realized that, and maybe you know more about this than I do. That Ben Ridgeway's social media profiles had all disappeared. No, that's ben, news to me. Ben Ridgeway erased himself from social media. Wow. And I was like, is this a response to the AI art thing? Is he hoping that he doesn't um, get, has he, is he like hermit crab back into the shell? Man, I, I, I wouldn't want to speculate on that. I don't know. That would be an interesting theory. I yeah. don't know why suddenly. The only people that are posting his work are Threda. And that's the only place you can find his stuff on social media. His accounts, his professional accounts have all vanished. I haven't asked him about this personally. Wow. But it was strange because I was like, for whatever the reason, it's like that you're still indexed on Google search. Like you're still mm -hmm. there. You're still, and in your case, it's the same kind of thing. It's like everyone who has ever copied a piece of your work like the when kevin kelly talks about the internet as a great copying machine it's like all of that stuff is like the echoes of you or the waves of you are still out there but there's there's not a the center is what or not the center but like the middle layer is what disappeared i'm curious to hear you think about yeah. that yeah it's definitely the uh, my greatest hits are out there and it would be beyond my means to eradicate that from the contemporary data data set, but really it's like a lot of what I lost were the, it's the things that nobody's ever seen, like all the B-sides, all the B-tracks, all the, the process. I, for any finished piece, there could be 500 megabytes of 
layered files and process files like leading up to that 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 finished point that I gave up on it all the working things the sketchbooks were definitely like so many of those things I realized that I think my I were the I was the only person who even had eyes on them and we like to predict ourselves into the future there was always going to be I had plans or projects or I'll make books of these one day or this could go piece of art that hurts the most would be the original Parma dragon that I had in the Smithsonian that was a piece that I was going to have my kids inherit that was upstairs that was uh, that one stung a lot but yeah it's and there's definitely been a lot of bartering I've gone over too it's just like we I'm such a hoarder when it comes to like my own data and saving things and backing things up and to the point where it becomes burdensome like I had so many different hard drives that I was transferring over into a raid just trying to find a file would take me days sometimes to go through all of it and I don't think there really is a great piece of technology for going and archiving and organizing all different sorts of from 3D files to PSDs to TIFFs to JPEGs to CTLs and OBJs. There's just so many forms that data takes. But I have thought about it too, which is there is a perceived value that I have, but I also have to understand that I do in the world of business and, and auctions, there's this idea of the, there's a principle like there's this entitlement principle that we also tend to overvalue the things that we own. That's why you never want to be the highest bidder on something on an auction for more than a week. Because the longer you're the highest bidder, the more you think you own it. And in those last three minutes, the more you're willing to overspend on it because you've given it more value because it's something that you've owned. So there's like a perceived value of these things and what the reality is. And we'll never know those things. And I'm part of my work now is continuously just letting go of that. And like day by day, it's, there's definitely spikes where I remember something that was in there. And that is, oh, that there, there's little pain points, but I feel every day I'm getting more comfortable with the idea of surrendering to the acceptance of all these things. Decohering. What's nice about the decoherence is that I also think that that energy is out there in the universe. I did, did joke with some people and they asked me why the fire started. And I'm like, I think it was because there was just so much latent creative potential being stored there that the barn may have just spontaneously combusted. Uh, it was just, I was just like dragging on this like mountain of my own gold and whatever. But it's, That's exactly it's, it's, the it's image I had. You're reading my mind <laughs> in this conversation or I'm reading yours. I don't know what's going on here, but clearly there is something about it, like the dragon horde, right? And But then also... The, this issue of, I'm curious to what degree you feel, and maybe it's a little early to even say this, but mm. what degree you feel liberated from yeah. this? Because just to make, to anchor it in a personal thing, I've been working on an album for over 10 years. I've been working on a book for about the same amount of time. Yeah. There are these painful, pregnancies of creation in a way if all of that stuff were to go up in smoke today i would feel both devastated by the inability to consummate all of that yeah but then also relieved that i'm no longer required to i would be free to start something else and so i'm curious for you in the space that this has made what are you are you attending to the saplings growing up in this or are you oh, yeah what absolutely. is what's that piece of it for you 
Yeah, and try to make sure that I'm. It, there's a distinction whether the way I feel like this, if it's just another phase of me rationalizing and bartering with the loss, or if it's authentic or not. But there is absolutely a release within this. There's a deep grief that if you take the kind of the metaphor that all of your going off of the pregnancy metaphor, that barn had tens of thousands of like my little babies in it. And all those babies are gone. All those babies are decohered. And there were some beautiful babies in there. And there were a lot of stillbirths. There were a lot of mutants. There was a lot of babies that the world was never going to see. And maybe you can understand like from an artist, like it's really, even if you have a bad drawing, something feels wrong about burning it or throwing it away. And so there's a certain weight to all the terrible JPEGs and drawings and sketches that the world was never going to see. And I was carrying them on from a place of feeling obligated to my connection with it and an unwillingness to let that go. So there's a lot of that. And so to be free of all of that, the good and the bad, yeah, I've never felt lighter than this. My friend Zavi, he lost his studio in the Ashland fire. He told me, it's like, yeah, it's like we both won a, a Buddhist merit badge that we never asked for. <laughs> and there is that. And there's a lot like it too. Like I'm such a materialist and I had been aware for a while too that I don't know what the turning point was, but we all have a relationship to the material objects that we covet and collect and possess. And I, there's with all those things, there is a burden to that. And I think what this experience really has done is it's really, it's given me a whole new perspective to explore my relationship with the material physical world with tools. What's really, really it's, the value of it is the amount of introspection that it's inspired around me analyzing those relationships and those strategies and all the different decisions I made. And because so many of the decisions I think I make when it comes to like my studio and what I'm making or what I'm collecting or what I think is valuable, what I'm holding on to, I feel like sometimes a lot of those decisions are even almost like spontaneous in that moment. Like there's sometimes it feels like there may not have been a lot of thought to having these things. Like I know things are valuable. I've always, like I said, I'm an apocalyptimist, but I've always had, I've always carried a great deal of fear in my whole life, fear of death, fear of like annihilation, fear of disaster and impending disaster. And a lot of the things and supplies that I kept in that barn were my just futile hedges against impending doom, whether that be like, like prepping apocalyptical supplies. I'm a bit of a gun guy. I had a lot of ammunition in there that went off in a really dramatic fashion. Lots of extra medicine and masks. And like I was planning, like the barn had everything I need to hold off a zombie apocalypse for a, a significant amount of time for the world to go into its next phase. And those were all hedges I had against the world that I was really afraid of in a world that I didn't feel safe in. And so to do not have that and to realize that all the energy that I put into feeding that fear. And I think the only reason I would acquire these things is because it gave me at least I can be afraid of something, but if, if I'm, if I'm afraid of something and I buy something that makes me less afraid of that. It feels like it's one manageable way of 
dealing with it or putting it off into the future. And so to have to realize that all of those plans that I made were for nothing and whether or not I would ever need them or not need them, but all the energy I put into that was, was for not was pretty eye opening too. So man plans and God's laughs just there's definitely a lesson in realizing that you can never you, you, you could never prepare for everything that's going to happen to you. Like I said, I was always prepared for a wildfire and all of my firefighting gear and pants and face masks and respirators and gloves were all inside the barn in my wildland firefighting box. That was exact was by one of the doors. Cause I thought if the barn catches on fire. I'll be able to get this from it. You make all these plans, just realizing like how futile and how, how unsuccessful that strategy is definitely inspired and encouraged a new outlook for the future. So there's a couple of things here. One, one is Fight Club. It just when you're talking about the weight of all this stuff, just in passing, yeah. right? But then the other one is when I saw you at Boom in 2016. I was reading William Irwin Thompson's "The American Replacement of Nature," and he has this mm-hmm. passage in there about the prophet versus the pastoralist. And he says, there's, it's one of those famous, there's two kinds of people thing, right? And those of us who are attuned, like the prophets, those of us who are attuned to the whispering on the wind or whatever, who are thinking about or committed to the transcendent, struggle to live as though we are the pastoralists, the farmers, the people that that coop. And it's interesting because I've heard you talk about this. You and I have this in common. I think mean, maybe you vastly to <laughs> the amplitude for you, mm-hmm. maybe even more so than I, I don't know, but I, I respect you a lot for having reconciled these things in a way. I years of international travel and constant motion came to a screeching halt when I had kids. I did not manage to thread the needle and keep touring and keep doing festivals with my family all of this stuff as you did. And I respect you immensely for it. But at the same time, I hear you talk about the last interview you had uh, with Michael Phillip on third eye drops talking Mm -hmm. the days back when you were just living out of your solar powered box truck deal with your little mobile renegade base, the barn on wheels kind of thing. Yeah. The precursor for sure. Yeah. And there's a tension in these things that I think is, you know, I'd love to, it's anyway, William Irwin Thompson says that when the prophet tries to plant stakes and put up fences, God appears as the moving whirlwind. So it's just what you said. It's just like the, there is this like man, man plans, God laughs. There is always this unknowable thing about it that just reminds yeah. us, I don't know. Now, it is an enemy that you are going to lose to every time. And I think there was a new awareness of, I don't know, sometimes like the utter pointlessness of investing so much energy into hedging my fears against a unknown potential given birth to in my imagination that I feel like I was doing almost, it was such a part of me that it was the, a lot of the actions taken towards that were totally unconscious. And I think a lot of it too, that wasn't just about trying to stave off like the end of the world. I've definitely had a lot of my ideas have matured a lot over the years around that. But I think a lot of it was also the, 
at least like the art on a level represented a like my hedge of an investment to take care of like my children and my family. Like I'm not a I'm not a 401k guy. I'm not a big savings guy. I'm a real fluid. I have a very fluid relationship with energy, and I'm very in the moment. And I try to do my best to make it rain and support my family and my team and the community around me. But I'd always be one that believed that like investing in myself and the work that I was doing would be something that would work itself out in the end. And yeah, there's definitely a, I think that some of the, the feelings I had in that first like 24 hours was there was a the diminishment, but there was also just feeling so naked and exposed. It's like when you have your territory is taken away. All the tools I have to fix problems are taken away. And now I have a bigger problem than ever. And I'm the broken thing that needs fixing. It was very, it was just this, the, the cascading of all of this grief. And I think this is like part of the, what I'm, the part of the story that I'm really interested in focusing on too, is that like I had within that first 24 or 48 hour period, like I had never felt this level of depression, regret, anger with myself or not backing things up or using a fire, all those different things that naturally come up and fear, the fear of what am I going to, what comes now? There's no template to how to recover from something like this and not knowing what to do and having three small children that depend on me and having my employees and having everything. I had never, yeah, I guess I always, I'd always taken a lot of pride in being able to support myself and to be at a place where, and to support other people and to help other people and to be on the totally opposite side of that equation was so foreign to me that it was hard for me to contextualize and make sense of it. It was such a new and alien feeling and it was living, just being able to live the terror that I had worked so hard to avoid within that would be you mentioned before as I'm one that has I've I'm a person that's voluntarily gone through many simulated psycho psychedelic ego death trips and looked those experiences out it was very much there were similarities but there was a realness to this one there was like an existential dread and reckoning that was it wasn't like anything I'd ever experienced before and the I think the confusion that came out of that and simultaneously this I feel like it's also like grief is this really non-linear thing and it's a, my, my friend John had told me that it's actually it's more of a condition than an emotion the way that it comes up from just moments of just like there was one day where I felt like all I could do was just cry just like weep around like it took like maybe 24 hours for that to for that to take take hold so there's this fear and there's this sadness, but basically long story short, I felt like this experience reduced me to just like the smallest atomic element of who I thought that I was. And what it did, because when, because I was stripped of all of my tools, all of my protection, all of the meaning and agency that I'd built so hard to build up, it, it's that sort of devastation that I feel enabled me to take a deeper look at these new feelings and emotions that I was having in order to try to reconcile them. I was very fortunate that I had been seeing a, I see a therapist on maybe like a, a monthly, I've been seeing him for I think a few months now. And I feel like when I started seeing him, it was really just like 
preventative maintenance therapy. Just my wife and I see a therapist for our relationship. She sees one. It's just good to have someone just to talk to that you pay them to like not give you bad advice when you just talk about things. And I felt that like we didn't have a lot to work on at the time. And I remember going into his office and just bawling my eyes out, just like collapsing on his couch for the first, he'd never seen me in a state like that. And it was really working with him. He really was, I'm really grateful for him. He was like the soundboard that allowed me to talk through the things that I was feeling. And in that deep place of surrender, I realized that once I had surrendered to like that, this is broken and I can't fix this by myself. I have no, like in the, I'm thinking like I have no safety net. I've created no safety net that has insulated me or will save me from this. That's when I had some friends of mine that were very supportive that encouraged me to do a start a, like a fundraising campaign to see if we could get back up to speed. And that was, I'd say in a level of in like my Maslow scale, if losing all the things and all my art and all that I thought valuable was like at the top level fear, like asking for help and handhandling on the internet to help me was like right underneath <laughs> that fear. And so to have this one and so the gross. only option yeah. is to turn into like the second thing I've been the most afraid of doing. Yeah, was a, that was a trip. But I was just talking to my therapist, like what it really... I asked them about, we dived into that. What is the fear? Like, why does the idea of asking for help, like, feel so repulsive? Like, why is that so scary? And what's behind that? And what's interesting is that that really created, and, and a lot of these, in a lot of the ayahuasca circles and ceremonies, there's a lot that gives you a place where you can go into the past and history and things. And sometimes in those there's so many things going on it's hard to really focus this grief put me in a place where it really removed a lot of the other distractions and i felt like i had a, even a, a deeper opportunity to go inward into my life and the things that have happened to me and what it what became really immediately clear this is one of the things i was working on the therapist is that when i was so i on in in my story i'd say this is the second major existential ego death near death trip that I've had. And the first one I had when I was 11, I was 11 year old boy. I was here in Colorado and I had a, you can, it's like where I get my really, my really groovy scar from, but I had a major brain surgery when I was 11 and it came on out of nowhere, similar sort of circumstances. There was no explanation or logical reason for why it happened, but it was a really impactful and deep type of life-threatening event. They had to, it was like a, it plays out in my memory like an alien abduction of just one day your things are okay. Day two, you can't make sentences. Day three, I'm getting CAT scans and I'm going through machines and catheters and dye and your head shaved and I'm on a table and they're drilling like four holes into my skull to take a chunk out and peel my face down. But regardless, that, that was like my first major spiritual crisis where something really scary happened to me out of nowhere and my whole world got turned upside down all of my thoughts of concepts of mortality and that the world is safe and that I that you spend 11 years trying to get a feel for how you're going to navigate the world and then all that gets flipped upside down and for me I remember that it was actually the recovery phase of that was 
where I experienced a really specific type of trauma. And that was all these people that I know now, like these were classmates and parents of classmates that would come to the hospital to visit me and, and my recovery. And the recovery, recovering from a, an operation like that, it's my whole, when you peel your face off, there's a lot of really extreme bruising. There's this huge scar. I don't have hair anymore. I remember looking at a mirror and not even just being like, I had having Frankenstein's monster moment, just being so horrified about what I was seeing. I can remember people that had the best intentions coming to visit me and coming with flowers or with cards because they cared and they were trying to show me love and show my family support. But I always remember that like they couldn't, especially that kids my age, it was really hard for just re reflexively when they would first look at me, I'd see the look of just like terror in their eyes. And they were probably seeing the fear of what if this happened to them or their kids, but I hated it. I really recoiled from it. And I began to really resent any of the help people were giving me. And I would go to the mall. I remember the first time I was able, I was well enough to go to Crossroads Mall with my mom to do some shopping and seeing like the way kids would look at me and point and whatever they were saying. The 11 year old made a real decision there that like, I don't like the world. I don't trust the world. And it really was the world of like my imagination and my sketchbooks and drawing that I retreated to because I knew the horizontal and the vertical of that world. And as an artist, one of the perks is you spend a lot of time by yourself. And because I was just, that was like my journey towards healing, which wasn't a full healing. It was actually just triage was, were really like the fundamental aspects of like why I developed my talent into what it is. It wasn't a, a and I wasn't, I didn't go to it to heal. I just went to it because it was the only thing that I was able to feel some inkling of this is a world that I can control and feel safe and to realize that that was, that it was this thing. And what I also realized this is something I've, I think that a big insight that I'm, that I feel I'm excited to think share because the more I've spoken with other artists, the more I've realized that there's, I feel it's one of those things like the deeper that you can dig into yourself and your own personal truth, despite everybody goes through trauma. Trauma is universal, but the experience that each of us has and the conditions are, are very unique. But sometimes the deeper that you dig, there's more common ground that actually comes up. And what I realized that as far as like my relationship with love, with asking for help, with interacting with people or giving, I developed a strategy for giving and receiving love through the creation of art. I was able to express my love through art as like an, like gifts of appreciation. I could put my love into a thing on my own terms. I could give that love in the form of a card to my mom or an image or a book cover. And then I would receive love through the adoration of this external thing that I made totally unconsciously. And the last 30 years of my life has just been a consistent down on that strategy. And looking back, I feel like it's actually a pretty, on some levels, there's a pretty brilliant strategy on a lot of ways. And what it's made me realize is that art as an application, and I can say for myself, and I think there's other artists that would be able to have some feel empathy for this, is like 
a visual artist in particular, I feel like it's actually like one of the safest ways to send, to express and receive love from other people. I feel like that's a lot of what I was doing because when you make something, it's a way of interacting with the friction of love on your own terms because you're putting this thing out there and people appreciate that and put energy into that. But if they don't like it, it's okay because it's not you. And we work so hard to make these pieces of art so amazing because we want to make it impossible to reject. It's funny that you say this. Because it's so good. Yeah, because I'm fond of telling people that I think it, it took me years to realize this. But what I came to understand about the decision to paint at concerts and festivals and I think, I don't know if this is true of everyone, but it certainly seems to be true of a lot of the live painters I know, is that they didn't know how to just be in that space. They didn't know how to just go to a party. Like yeah. I, I grew up with a sketchbook in the corner of the room. If I didn't have yeah. a, if I didn't have that or a guitar in my hand or something, like if, and then that, that provided a buffer that yeah. gave you something that you're doing so you can be interesting. And if people want to come talk to you, cool. And if, Otherwise, then you don't have to. You don't have to go mingle. You don't have to put yourself out there in that same kind of way. Yeah, and, it's like waging a proxy war with like your own heart and the world <laughs> through the data ohm. Like yeah, through the data yeah. ohm. Like love or reject the data ohm, because it doesn't feel <laughs> you're not as impacted by it. And there's, I guess, with live painting, it is interesting. I remember when I first started doing live digital paintings digitally, like on tour at concerts and shows. There is, I think there's a bit of a distinction because there is, I remember there was a lot of vulnerability getting up on stage and like plugging in my Wacom on my computer because you could totally fail. And so there is a bit more one-to-one relationship there than just posting a piece of art and waiting it for it to accrue like comments or likes. But either way, I think that the big strategy is the same. It's, there was a disconnection from it. Ultimately, it was a coping mechanism and a strategy that worked pretty well for a while. But in the end, what I also realized is that it was a real, it's a real handicap to put those sort of walls up and put those sort of defenses up in order to feel safe. And so when I was at a point where that was, that was some of the greatest fears is like, man, I've been, and these are all things I've just been realizing in the last 10 days is that the reason the barn was so powerful to loss is it was like, this is what I was. My strategy was all of this art that I'd release eventually or put into books or things like, this is why people care about me. And this is why I love, because I've been using the projection of this art as a way of receiving the appreciation and love from other people. But because it was this satellite, I was also, I wasn't ever it's a safe way to play, but the stakes aren't as high because I wasn't really receiving it or wasn't really fully embracing it because I had this thing in between me and the emotions of other people. So I feel like the reason that I'm feeling good now and not huddling in a fetal position, crying over all the things that I lost is that through this, through the surrendering to how just totally effed I felt that I was, forcing me to it be, go introspective into realizing why asking for help was so terrifying. And then realizing that when you ask for help, you know, I've learned so much about help, so much about asking for help and so much about giving. 
and that the keys for asking for help were the key to, as far as like the relationship between when, because there is a gift in giving to someone. We give a lot. We like to donate. I, it feels great to give. As an artist, it feels great. You're always giving. I'm not expecting something in return for every piece of art that I make. There's a there's an effective transaction that happens there that's accidental, but learning the gift when someone's giving to you that the best, that the way to, um, cause that seems I'm not used to like having gifts. I really, I really focus on what are the dynamics of giving and receiving is that the gifts that you have to them. And what my therapist said, he's like, the gift that you gave me today was your vulnerability. Like having you come into my office crying is nothing would have made me like feel that I had more meaning in my life than to fix you. He's been waiting for that. I thought our sessions were pointless. I'm like, I'm not getting any breakthroughs here for the last couple of months. But he's like, we have something to work on. And <laughs> oh, good. that was a huge You're helping him. Yeah, That's the fixer wound. I'm sure those people tend, yeah. to, tend to be like folks that had to grow up prematurely to take care of their parents or that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. They, they totally. need that. They need that to feel themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was really it because, yeah, I wasn't very, I did not see vulnerability as a, what was, that was not like a real, that was not a really high priority for me was to be vulnerable in front of people. And it was all this 11 year old kid boy that was scared and made this strategy for how to operate in the world and found a way to give and receive love that felt safe. And it worked for the up until this certain point. And it's just, it's really what, what really just blows my mind is like how I thought a lot about trauma, just like the accumulation of trauma, like how I've been listening a lot of like the bore Moses, like this, but trauma is what happens to you. It's what happens inside of you. It's how you make sense of the world after that thing happens at trauma. It's the meaning that you give it. And it's your, how it's the way that you disconnect from your authentic self. And I really disconnected from the potential of my authentic self when I was a boy and underwent all this. And what this, I feel like what this event, what this trauma did in particular is it reduced me to a point that allowed me to see with clearer eyes the like where a lot of this trauma snowball started its initial momentum. And I don't know what could have, what would have inspired that kind of a deep introspection, but this, so it's, yeah, it's been really, it's been really incredible. Like I will constantly pour out 40 for all the homie hard drives and art that I lost, but the person that this has turned me like the process that I've gone through. And that's, so that's one part of it. That's part of the story. But the other, where the story really changes, I was convinced the first day that like, and this is my legacy. I'm the guy that built all this up and it all burnt down. Like I'm the artist that lost it all. I'm the cautionary tale. I'm the warning. Like my fate, like I've been building everything up to like a crescendo of this ultimate material failures where I thought that I had made my footnote in history to go from there, get to the point we reduced where I have to beg the internet and everybody for help, which was something I've never done before. I've never asked for help. And to then acknowledge what are the psychological components of how I wired myself to not want help and how do I repair that and how do I make myself vulnerable and open to receive the help. It were, those were, those are all the things setting the stage to 
the what I've experienced in the last like ten days is the I don't know the most extreme and most like astounding response of love and thought and energy and donations and comments from people that have been in my life that I could have ever imagined. Like the amount of love that has been directed my way in this last week has totally been beyond my imagination. And to be in a place where I feel like I can, and I'm still learning on how to receive that love. But now that it really took me not having this third party proxy battalion in the way of managing it, just letting it come and witnessing it is it's been it's been one of the greatest gifts that I've ever experienced in my life just as a human being. The things that it's done for me on a personal level, like what it means as an artist, like the amount of the ability of just the acknowledgement of it. I've read through thousands and thousands of people's comments and I had no idea that I had that kind of impact on people and I never would have known that if this didn't happen to me. It's it's like the it's the it's like the antithesis of like death of a salesman kind of a thing. I get to like you see and it's it's hard to put it into words what it feels like, but I've never the kinds of emotions I've felt like they're only comparable to the feeling of like when I acknowledge that my daughter loved me for the first time, like it's the biggest, it's the most like heart mind blowing, heart blowing kind of experience that I've ever had. And it just keeps happening. And it's been the most, I I feel like I've never felt this enlivened and inspired. Like even in the, in Michael's podcast, I think I made a comment. It was like, I'm tired of reinventing myself. (laughs) I don't want to just, I don't want to keep doing this over and over. I need the way we use words. And here I am. I've never been, more excited about reinventing myself and I have this fresh slate and through so many people's generosity, I have the resources to buy whatever tools that I need to make this happen. But even beyond that, it's like, the big, I feel like the biggest shift is that this scared little, when I think about how trippy it is with the things that made me, it's like, I was a scared weird little kid that didn't like the world that liked spending his time by himself that liked drawing weird things and in high school i found psychedelics and found another reason to spend more time by myself making trippy things to think that that led to someone that put his art out there and is able to have that impact but that person too because i was i still carried so many of those wounds so many of those feelings of not feeling safe that i always had to take an extra amount of energy to hedge myself from the fact that the night is long and full of shadows. I've never felt safer than I do now. I never knew that I had this cosmic insurance plan of all the connections and relationships and meaningful points of contact that I had. Like I never knew that any of those things, I never knew that those things existed for me and to know them now and to have that, it's like, I've always been such a, I feel like the love that I express, that I focus on, it's a very nuclear love. It's like, I'm loyal to my family. They come first, my my wife, my kids, my team, and I'm very good at taking care of them. But I've, and, but I've always been a very individual, like the barn was me. It was like, my dad built, it was very Jones. My dad built it. 
I turned it into what it is. I work by myself. I make my art and I've been very, it's a very me oriented thing. And I've never felt more inspired to really be to serve a larger collective because now whatever we build, all of my art supplies, like this pencil and this sketchbook, this was somebody's $5 donation. And this was someone's $12 donation. Like all of the tools of my manifestation is directly from the community that is supporting me. So everything I do forward is a we. It's a this collaborative project born from care and trauma and rebirth from love and generosity and vulnerability. And like my like my therapist said I was telling the stories like this sounds like a victory for the human spirit. And like it totally is. It completely is. Like it's the worst this is now like the new this is the new worst best thing to ever happen to my life. And if you would have told me 10 days ago that this is going to be the best thing that ever happened to you, I might have used my kickboxing skills <laughs> on you at that moment, if that's what you were to say. But life is just, life is wild. Life is it's really, so I'm going through just wild stuff over here, Garfield. So last question for you. I have so many more, but. You have more time. I know you're a dad too, but I scheduled yeah. two hours, a two hour window. But, oh you know, God! So I feel, wish I could. Pressure from my side. I my my wife is at the tap room with my kids, probably losing her mind. I take I, care of it. I know exactly yeah. where you're at. But I want to ask you, God, there's actually two things, and maybe we can get them real quick. Yeah. One is you said cosmic insurance plan, barn insurance. Like that? Did that happen? Yeah, and that's related, I mean, and that's related to the treasure piece, right? Yep. Did you? That, you know, that's a totally fair question. And so. The, uh, our barn had burnt down in 2008. It was originally built in like 76. My dad built that one, it burned in 2008. My mom is the owner of that barn. And so she is, she did have, there's insurance for the structure, uh, the structure of it. Insurance is one of those things where, you know, the cost of building a barn today versus 2008 are obviously really different things. Yeah. Business wise, I'm, I'll tell you, I'm learning a lot about the intricacies of insurance. Like once, all the dust settles. I'd love to, I'm thinking like maybe I can do a YouTube video on just teaching artists about how they should be insured based off the mistakes that I made of not being insured. The insurance is a really complicated thing. There are some things in place. Like we definitely realized that I'm not an idiot. Like I run a business, like we've been paying insurance for almost like seven or eight years on things, but we have realized that we've been dramatically underinsured for what we have. We had some of the wrong types of insurance in place. But like I said, once I come out of this, man, I'll be able to give. I, it's like I want to talk to art. So when I see someone, an artist I haven't seen for a while, like, let me talk to you about insurance. <laughs> it's just like I... You used to I, be I, for Corel Painter, and now you're for yeah. Liberty Mutual. I'm shilling for Liberty and State Farm now. No, seriously. It's just like, listen, I want to... I'm inspired to create as much benefit for all the people out there from this tragedy as I possibly can. And I've been learning so many things, so many important things, both spiritual and logistical from this that are all things that I wish that I would have known as well. And speaking of the shilling, the one company that I am now, like I've, I haven't had any interaction with them so far. I recorded like a YouTube video just on my own for them like last week. But yeah, during that day, like the first, the one silver lining that happened the day of the fire, so that the fire's happening, it's raging. The first responders are like, this is probably going to burn for another 12 hours before you can go in and get in everything. Anytime I get close to the fire, they're like trying to back me out of the way. So 
as I participated in NFTs, I like crypto. I've been a fan of crypto. I wish I had more of it. I don't have that much of it, but what I had, I took off the exchanges maybe eight or nine months ago with all of the, just all of the exchange shenanigans that are happening. I'm a big believer in the not your keys, not your coins philosophy. I think everybody should take, if you've got it on Coinbase or Binance or whatever, like it's, what are you doing? That's yeah. It's so irresponsible to do that. And so I did that. And so I took it off the exchanges. I went with Trezor. I got like a little Trezor wallet. And so part of when you take your it off the exchange, you then you're responsible for your your passphrase, which is a 24, 24 words is what is your passphrase. And I remember as I was checking out, they had some like add-ons and they were like these two different metal wallets that you could buy. It's like a hundred bucks. And I was like, oh, that looks cool. That's probably a good idea. So I just I bought that thing too. And it sat on my desk for, if I did this, say if it is this eight months ago, it probably sat on my desk for seven months, just gathering dust. Because once I opened it, I was like, oh, how do I do this? I'm like, oh, this is actually really complicated. Not really complicated, but this is a really, it's going to take two hours. It's re- really going to be not fun to do this. Like you have to take the first four letters of each word and punch out these little tiny metal letters. And then I'd use like an airbrush needle and insert it into this little folding metal wallet. And I had to double check that they're all in the right way. There's no spelling mistakes. And it was like maybe a week before the fire happened. I was in my studio. I was supposed to be working on something. And the one thing I didn't love about the barn is just endless rabbit holes and distractions and projects to work on. So if I remember not feeling like I want to be making art, there's always something to do. And for whatever reason, filling out the metal treasure wallet ass phrase happened to be like how I chose to express my procrastination that day. And I sat down on my, I just finished a drawing. So I put it on my drawing table and it really, it, it took me probably two hours. I had to like take a break in the middle. Like it's really like exhausting work, but I did it. It was so funny because it's very, and it felt very uncharacteristic, but it's like I did it. I'm like, okay, good. I feel good. I did a thing today. I checked a box. Like I made some slight measurable difference in whatever by doing this thing today. And yeah, so when the, everything was burning, I remember my safe was on the top floor. I put, and then I put it in a safe. Keep in mind, my passphrase was just a, a laminated piece of paper and has been for like the last decade in the same safe. And I did this a week before. And as soon as the firefighters left, the first thing I did, because everything is gone, there's no pieces of paper remain. Anything that isn't solid steel is like anything aluminum is a puddle. Like heat was so intense. And I remembered the safe was on the top floor. And so it fell right into the middle of everything. So I didn't have a lot of, I've never stress tested this product. So I wasn't holding out a lot of faith in it working. Uh, but as soon as the firefighters left, I ran in there. I figured out where the safe would be based off the footprint of the other things. And I dug through and I found the safe. And even the safe at the corner of the safe was like melted and it was fused into a solid thing and went over a grinder. I grinded that son of a bitch open and like the, whatever I had in that safe before, all of the contents were nothing but like unrecognizable ash, but like the metal, it's called a bill fodal, like billfold, but hodl instead of right. fodal. It's a cute name, hundred bucks. 
I opened it up and I could read every letter on that thing. And so out of all, because I think crypto is like, it's such a, it's an industry that's so plagued by false promises and scams and rug pulls and shitty things. Just any of my friends that have crypto, I'm insisting that they just get one of these things because I guess it, it wasn't a lot. Like I'm not a guy that, that, that saves a lot of money. I'm always reinvesting. Even all the NFT money, I reinvested it into like gear and supplies and things that burned in the barn. But I will say that the thing that's interesting about it is that you get these things because you're like, oh, is this, it's a responsible thing to do. What I didn't realize is when I buy it is that if heaven forbid you ever need its features to be useful, but on the day that you need those features to be useful, they are the most useful because it's in the context of everything else that you thought was useful is burnt. So I'm just, I'm a lifelong fan and a shill. They're not, this is not a paid endorsement, <laughs> but just straight up. It's an awesome thing. And yeah, all my, I'm, I insist all my friends that have crypto a hundred bucks and a couple hours. And if the thing is, I get it. It wasn't like, Oh, we're good now. It's like, Oh, cool. Like it wasn't that kind of, of a realization, unfortunately, but in the midst of all of the tragedy, to have one little win at the end of the day, it just made the day, it made all the suffering of that day just like slightly more endurable. So yeah, there's some practical advice. And then put it in a safe, because if it's not in the safe, you're never going to find it. And put it on a second story if you have more than one story, so you don't have all of your debris collapsing on top of it. Just such basic things, but it, like I said, I was just it's so ridiculously auspicious and lucky that just happened to be a thing I did a week before. Is this, is it because of the 11 year old trauma that you just, you don't believe in like cloud storage? Like it's like a, it's a little bit of that, I guess. I mean, cloud storage for the data, like you like wouldn't want to keep your keys on I, a cloud. You know, God, that'd be, you would never would want to keep your keys on it. The whole point of having your, passphrase is you have it, you have a physical right. copy of it. But your art, all of this stuff, like it's, you're just like, ah, I'm not well, going to, I'm not going to pay those bastards or I, maybe not, I'm going to get hacked. Not really. And I don't care about a lot of like my visual data. I like all my high res images are out there on the cloud. Oh, another something I didn't want to mention though. I think that is a stupid before we, we cut off is what's funny is that a day before this happened, I thought that the biggest excess, the biggest thing I was, the, the biggest bad that I was worrying and fretting about and what I thought was the biggest existential threat to my art career was image generation and artificial intelligence. And so it was, and that's even why we were originally going to talk in the first place. And we didn't talk about yeah. that at all, which is we can, that'll keep being an issue for a long time. So Just as well. Can, yeah. But I will, I'll say this, you know, what I re, it was really great to have that one knocked down several pegs in my, my scale of priorities of what I'm worried about. Not that, because I thought I was so worried about it. And I definitely do think that it does present a very existential threat to our active living dynamic of creativity in this moment, particularly for new artists. Like we could, that's a whole other talk we can talk about, like very, of lots and lots of concerns and ideas around it. But I will say that what this experience has taught me is something that I had drastically undervalued and overlooked was that as an artist, I felt like I was very threatened by, I think any artist that puts time and develop a craft is threatened by a machine that makes art better than you, sometimes faster than you. It's very obvious to, that's a very 
concerning real threat. And if you just look at the finished product, it's hard to argue with that. But what I realized through just the, the love and the outpouring of support from everyone out there is that art is a lot more than the impact of the final product. And the reason that I have so many people out there that care for me, that are concerned about me, that have reached out and have supported me is because of the authenticity of the connection that they've made to my art and the art that I make, which is really interesting. The psychedelic art that I make comes from an extremely vulnerable place. When I'm in my castle on my machine with my Wacom, I can go really deep into my psyche and really deep into the medicine and pull out and go into really vulnerable places to pull these things out. And I feel like that's the power of why people connect with my art. And that kind of authentic connection, the connection you make with people that you make with people that support you, that you make with your community, that's something that an algorithm will never be able to make. Nobody's ever going to fund mid-journey. Even like Stable Diffusion couldn't even reach. I smashed the Unstable Diffusion Kickstarter. We annihilated that. There's, It's going to take a lot for someone, for no matter how good the art is. And this is also just something to keep in mind for new artists. I do support there's such a creative schism between traditional digital artists and the non-AI artists. And now there's these new sort of the new prompt engineer and artist. There's a lot of friction there right now, but something that I would advise for that these, I, John Perry Barlow taught me to never be suspicious of joy or to be less suspicious of joy. So whenever, <sighs> I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that are getting a lot of awesome feelings from using image generators and that's amazing for them. I'm really, who am I to deny anybody, any, whatever joy that they can squeeze out of this reality, not me. That's amazing. But what I would my prompt to those creators would be no is to recognize is that, that it is going to be, it's a, if you're leaning on a piece of technology and algorithm to create this art, it's going to be really difficult. No matter how amazing the art looks, if so much of the process is driven by the machine, I think it's going to be a really challenging to be able to create an authentic connection with people. And that's a, and the, employing a medium that is built, that it, by its very core is inauthentic. It's going to be a, it's going to be really challenging to establish that. And I've learned this week how that the establishment of that authentic relationship, a connection with people has been, that's been my saving grace. And that's been the most valuable thing that I've had this whole time. And I didn't even realize it until I needed it. First of all, that's amazing. Thank you. Second yeah. of all, I have to be a cheeky asshole and <laughs> say that you're going to find out that it was actually like stability AI got, went back in time like the Terminator and burned down your barn. You realize it was yeah, the it same issue. One of the tech bros that I pissed off just sent a <laughs> laser down. You know, Orbital platform. Could be. The Android yeah. versus the machine. No, yeah, man. I think Lucidity News wanted me to ask you what's next for you. I feel like you've covered that. But if yeah. you have any more to say about sure. that, just like where you had all these festivals lined up, I'm, I imagine you're still doing at least some of yeah. them. And, no, and but like what's, the, you've got this team yeah. of people that you're, what is now that yeah. you're, what's yeah. next immediately? We're still, yeah, still, we haven't changed any of our calendar. If anything, this kind of 
frees me up from different things. The immediate next is we're going to Costa Rica. We're going to be at Envision Festival, giving some talks out there. My other new side hustle is an art auctioneer. And thankfully, my auctioneer mallet happened to be like in my truck. So my auction mallet is still unscathed. I've been really big into auctioning off artists' work and my work and other artists' work. That's been a really fun thing. So we're going to be auctioning off a bunch of work at Envision, working out there. There's a thing at a festival called Soul Fest. We had, we're able to be going out there and doing some art and doing some visuals, making art for them. But ultimately, like the next, the new next is just like reestablishing my ground. I'm slowly building up a my arsenal of art tools and pencils and paper. And so there's a lot of that, which really interesting is like, I really enjoyed being so light and having my little grasshopper Buddhist stage. And I'm actually really apprehensive around and very specific about the new things that I want to acquire into my life. So I have this new start of building everything back up. So I'm slowly building out my traditional art zone where I'm going to be making art. I think I'm going to convert. I've got this semi-trailer called the Command Center. We had that out at Burning Man, I think in 2016. I think I'm going to convert that into my new digital studio. It's going to take weeks for hopefully the insurance investigators come up with whatever reason they think started a fire as soon as it Whenever they, as soon as they do that, then the crazy cleanup begins, which is going to be massive, but it's going to be, I think it's going to be awesome. It's good for me. I'm calling it just like the treasure hunting. And we've had, we have a lot of people in Colorado and a lot of support. And if you're out there and you want to listen to cool music and hang out and meet cool people and dig through the carcass of like my entire body of work, like you're invited to come out and help us. I got plenty of work gloves, but yeah, first stage is taking before like the big backhoes get there and just bulldoze everything into uh, into like trash trailers i want to go through and just find all the mangled like interesting pieces of metal and steel and debris and just all just like the wreckage treasures one i have enough charcoal to last me several lifetimes of, i can harvest all that charcoal for art materials but i'm i've actually been getting into metal sculpting recently like over i've been building up my arsenal for that and art wise i just it's so cliche but i just feel that within the wreckage of all the metal there there are all the there are all the building blocks the kit bash they just a, a sick ass metal phoenix out of that so that's one of the first like art projects i want to do we probably won't be able to build and i can't imagine we'll be able to really do any significant building until this spring even like we're trying to rewire power to some of the other outbuildings so we can continue doing printing and you can't even, I can't even dig a six inch trench with the ground being frozen or lay wire. So we're, I think as clean up as much as we can, get things together, set up some temporary structures. And I think this summer is going to be a lot of spring is going to be when the barn building starts. We've had some really amazing, a lot of what we have to, a lot of my visions will also be determined by what we can and can't do with just like the building codes in Boulder are not the most Boulder County is not the has not traditionally been the most generous and they're extending the building of things. But we've been, we've had a large dome that's been donated to us, but ultimately like that. So this is the micro of the macro, the micro of just, there's little things got to clean things up, build a Phoenix, just get back to be able to produce art. It's like the good old days. It's like I did remember, somebody did remind me too. Like you said, it's like I had this huge castle, like, I used to make art in the back of a box truck with a solar panel on top. So, oops. I don't need 
too much to do that. So I'm going to start minimal. But the bigger thing that I see, and this is an idea I've had pre-existing to this, but now I'm even more inspired to do this. It really is this we. I'm more we than I've ever been before. It's a very, it's a new thing. And one of the ideas that we really wanted to do here is to have, I want to be a more beneficial, more artists, like the new tools that we're able to buy and invest. Like I want those to be tools that I can share and teach people with. So we have some property, we have some land on our property that we've been talking about the idea of a somewhere between a healing art studio and a maker's space. Just something like that's like the energy that comes out of my heart is there. It's in like giving, sharing. I regret how many originals were in my possession that should have been out there or my friends should have had. So like the big lesson for me is like this is that there's so much power in openness. There's so much power in vulnerability and the gift is in the giving. And I've been receiving so much and I'm so grateful for that. And I can't wait to, I can't wait to get be on the other side and have the gift of being able to give that love and that energy out to people and just to contribute to the toroidal process of a win-win energy manifold of retribution. Right on. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Man. You bet, man. Thank you. I'm glad you're like, as a, this whole week I felt like I've been in this, like this new zone of clarity. I'm grateful for you and that I'm able to express these things now while they're still fresh before things it's like after a really great trip eventually things start to calcify back into the original shape that it was most familiar with yeah. this is a pretty big decalcification of things like there is no there's no going back to that there, there's no going back to the way it was before and i'm finally excited about that i'm so much more excited about who i am now and who i am becoming and the person i was and the things that i lost i don't imagine i'll ever see you sitting on a horde of dragon treasure again in quite that way. But if you are, not don't worry, quite that I, way. I will, not uh, quite that way. I'll remind you of this conversation. It's like, my one takeaway quote. I think I, I think it, it was in, I think it just ended up on one of our fundraiser blooper reels of videos didn't get used. But a week before this too, I was at Ryan Parks reminded me of this. It's a Ken Wilber quote and it's the, on the ladder, the higher you climb, the more the ladder sways. And uh, the barn that was, I was on the tippy top of a super high, awesome ladder and my ladder swayed and my ladder burned and my ladder decohered. And I am not really excited about building a bigger, taller ladder. I'm definitely more excited about building a bigger, wider, more stable table that more people can sit at with me is where that's where my alignment and my compass is heading right now. Cool. Yeah. I'll uh, see you at that table. Yeah, man. Come by for sure. Lots of seats.
moralist tends to think the laws of God are more on his side than on his enemies. So he will try through faith and religion and the exercise of ritual to get God to settle down with him and go along with his way of life. The mystic, however, is not a moralist for motion, complexity, and an angelic-demonic ambiguity in which one's enemy is also part of the divine manifestation in history are all part of the cosmic life on the other side of the fence. Home means a lot to moralists, but the mystic is society's alien and is not allowed to have a home smaller than the universe. Anytime he tries to settle for less, to settle down and set up fences, God appears as the moving whirlwind. Whirlwind. Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is an independent 
ad-free, entirely listener-supported program. If you believe in the work that I'm doing and you want to help see it thrive into the unimaginable future, then you can avail yourself of all of the backstage goodies at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Or you can just leave a review at Apple Podcasts. That's more helpful than you know. Reach out to me personally at Michael Garfield on Twitter or Instagram. And have a wonderful eon.